the book of Matthew. We are back. Hope you had a good Thanksgiving break and we're able to have some time to reflect on what truly matters, what truly, uh, what you truly should be thankful for. I mean, we have many things uh, to be thankful for, but hopefully this time you're able to meditate on Christ and uh, his blood and his sacrifice, his payment for sin. Um, just by way of reminder, uh, this is not a you must, but this is a you may, uh, by order of our governor of Pennsylvania, the sweet state of Pennsylvania, to keep on your mask. I guess I'm the rule breaker here, but I'm in a precarious position. Um, anyways, you should be at Matthew chapter 5, and we'll be looking at another two, two more of the Beatitudes. We finished the first three two weeks ago, and we're going to plug forward with two more, just two more this afternoon. And let's start by reading from verse 2. And this reads God's word. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied, or they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And thus reads the word of the living God. So far, we've been studying how Christians must view themselves. Uh, Jesus says that the Christian is poor in spirit, uh, meaning you recognize there must be a bankruptcy of any self-estimation. We covered that two weeks ago. Then the Christian must mourn over his or her sin. Uh, a good phrase to keep in mind when you think about you in relation to your own sin is, I am the worst sinner I know. I am the worst sinner I know. Uh, because for all intents and purposes, you are the only sinner you know. Uh, you know your sin the best more than anyone else. And outside of God, uh, because God knows your sin even better than you do, uh, you only know your sin because only you and really examine and reflect your own heart. Uh, your sin is juxtaposed, or another fancy word for put side by side next to a holy God. And what that yields is reckoning or wrath. Therefore, knowing judgment is to come, one must mourn over his or her condition, uh, a sinful condition. Jesus then moves on to say, uh, one, you also must be meek. Uh, to be meek is to know your position as a sinner before God, that you are completely at the mercy of God, but not without hope. And so this brings us to uh, the next two verses we'll be looking at tonight. I want to reemphasize to you that uh, the Beatitudes, these blessed attitudes, are on a progression, uh, a movement. Uh, 
As we move deeper into the Beatitudes, Jesus paints for us a fuller picture of what it means to be Christian, uh, what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven that he'll use another 20 or so times. And from here, we move to how uh, we move out away from how the Christian views himself or herself, uh, but how the Christian now views God. How the Christian now views God and who he is and what he does. Namely, how they view God's actions towards them. And so the two key topics we'll be looking at are how do we view and understand God's righteousness and our righteousness? And how do we view and how do we understand God's mercy and our mercy? The main idea I want to convey to you tonight concerning these two Beatitudes is this. The Christian's character is always dependent upon God's character. The Christian's character is always dependent upon God's character. Uh, To say it in reverse, God's blessing or his divine favor uh, comes from that character of a Christian that reflects God's character himself. In other words, your character begets blessing. The title for my sermon is Character Begets Blessing. And so we'll see this play itself out in these two Beatitudes. First, the Christian's righteousness is derived from God's righteousness. The Christian's righteousness is derived from God's righteousness. And second, the Christian's mercy is derived from God's Mercy. The Christian's mercy is derived from God's mercy. So let's just jump right into verse six. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. The key operative term here is righteousness. What does it mean to be righteous? Better yet, Who are you being righteous for and why? Uh, In short, to be righteous is to be found without fault under a system of truth. To be found without fault under a system of truth. Meaning when one is evaluated by another's standard of truth or morality, they are found without fault. They are found without blemish. But our righteousness, the Christian's righteousness, can only be derived from God's righteousness. God is perfectly righteous in according to himself, on the basis of himself, because he is perfect. He is the standard. It is his law that we abide by. And how we abide by that law indicates whether we are righteous or not. Uh, You can be righteous in a myriad of ways, in a myriad of forms. Uh, In front of your friends, in front of the internet, uh, you can say PC politically correct things. For example, it's politically correct for nowadays to say homosexuality is absolutely okay and should be promoted. You'll be righteous in some eyes. But that does not mean you are righteous before God. Uh, The 
The only people who will think you are righteous are those who share the same standards of righteousness as you do. But the question you must ask yourself is, do I share the same, same standards of righteousness as God? As God? And that is why it's imperative for us to live according to an outside divine source to define what righteousness is for us. Because when you have competing voices telling you what is right and what is wrong, you will never know what objectivity, what is truly right and truly wrong is. You'll just be tossed around in the whims of man and you will live your life according to have, having no solid moral grounding. And therefore, so to be right before God, to be right before God is the only thing that matters in terms of being righteous. Whether you're right before God will have eternal ramifications uh, outside of whether you get likes on your post or not. And there's eternal ramifications at play here. Uh, it can not only concerns your eternal destiny, but also your present lifestyle. And that is what Jesus is driving at here. The Christians should care only for the righteousness that comes from God. And so let me go a little bit deeper here into this concept of righteousness according to God. Um, this, to flesh out this idea of what it means to derive your righteousness from God. Because before we go into what it means to hunger and thirst for righteousness, uh, we need to know what God, the Bible says about God's righteousness in the first place. The Bible has two uses for this term, righteousness, uh, or, or, or being righteous. Uh, one you may be familiar with in concept, that is your positional righteousness. And the other, a little bit maybe less so, uh, that is your functional righteousness. Uh, both of these terms find their bearing in relation to God and who God is. God is holy, and he's also the creator of all things. Um, him being holy means he's set apart. He's entirely different from us. And him being creator means that as his creation, we are subject to his intent and his design for us, which is to have a relationship with him. Um, through observing how we live, how we operate in the world that he created, a relationship with God in the context of his creation. And as you know, through our sin, through our first parent's sin, uh, we have rebelled and separated ourselves from God's intended order as his pinnacle of creation. And therefore, through sin, we are no longer righteous, but rather unrighteous. We have crossed, we have been found fault in God's system of truth. And God, being holy, being set apart, cannot abide with unrighteousness of his creation, and therefore he must punish it. He must destroy it. The gospel then answers the ultimate question. How can a holy and righteous God abide or be with unholy and unrighteous man? The gospel answers that chief question. How can a holy and righteous God abide with, live with, be with, commune with, holy, unholy, excuse me, an unrighteous man? And the answer is 
Sunday school answer. Jesus. Jesus. There we go. Jesus. Exactly. The holy and righteous God-man who mediates, who intercedes or comes in between both holy God and unrighteous and unholy man. Uh, His life and death act as the atonement and the propitiation for sin. Propitiation, a fancy term, meaning the payment required for sin, which is death. And atonement, which means what is required for reconciliation between God and man. Through Jesus' atonement and propitiation, we then, those who live by faith and walk by faith and believe in and on the Lord Jesus Christ can be counted as righteous before God. And all of that culminates in another fancy term called justification, to be justified before God. All right, tracking with me here? Our justification through Jesus Christ is the declaration by God that we are no longer unrighteous, but rather we are righteous, not on our own account, but through the account, through the life and death and subsequent resurrection of Jesus Christ. Christ's righteousness covers our unrighteousness. Through justification, God no longer sees our unrighteousness, but rather he sees Christ's righteousness in us. And so positionally, our position before God, we are righteous although we still presently still sin in our sinful flesh, as Paul describes it in Romans 7. However, we are no longer under the penalty of sin, in position, in position. And so this is the, um, the classic courtroom scene you can imagine. In God's heavenly court, God the judge no longer sees our unrighteousness and sin, but rather Christ on our behalf took the punishment for sin so that we may be made righteous through him, in and through him. And therefore, when God the judge, this is my gavel, bangs his gavel and he renders his verdict, his judgment is not guilty. Not guilty. Positional righteousness is this righteousness that you might be familiar with because the gospel explains that, that if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be counted as righteous before God in standing, in standing, not in being. And that's where the second functional righteousness comes in, also known as the process of sanctification sanctification. So in sanctification, you are in the process of becoming more righteous in your life. Your thoughts, your words, your actions are becoming more conformed to the righteousness of Christ as you grow less like your former self and more like your Savior, Jesus. That is sanctification in a nutshell. Um, And so you move from this initial position of being declared righteous to becoming more and more like Jesus as you walk with him every day. And so if you are a Christian today, my hope and my prayer is that you are more like Jesus today than you first were when you first come to know Jesus. Amen? Hopefully. Hopefully. 
And it's this functional righteousness, how you function in the world that appears everywhere in the Bible. In the Old Testament, in the New Testament, the Psalms are full of old Christians, old believers, these old saints pining for a greater sense of God's righteousness in their own lives. Uh, They wish to be more like God. You read Psalm 119, and you read how this psalmist loved God's law and wanted to obey it, wanted to be righteous through God's law. And therefore, when you see uh, the term righteous or righteousness used in Scripture, be careful to observe the context in which it is used. So more often than not, um, with the the Apostle Paul, for example, most most of our New Testament is written by the Apostle Paul, and he wrote, dealt, dealing with our positional righteousness, with our justification before God. The book, the books of Romans and Galatians are all about that, all about that. How can a righteous God abide with an unrighteous man through the work of Jesus Christ? That is how we are justified. And however, the Apostle Paul, he always leaves room to deal with the so what, Uh, How does God's righteousness practically play out or function in my life as a Christian? Uh, And that's where this concept of functional righteousness comes from. So if you are a Christian today, you now deeply care about your righteousness before God. You deeply care about not offending him anymore through your sin. You care about obeying his commands. You care about loving him. You care about loving his word. You care about loving his neighbor. You love his neighbor, your neighbor. He, you care about loving his church. The Christian lifestyle is one of functional righteousness that comes out of an understanding of your positional righteousness, righteousness, that you're no longer a sinner. You're no longer bent for hell, but now you are redeemed. You are justified, and you're a position before God in right standing because Christ stands in your place. And we can go on and on about what kind of righteousness uh, the Bible talks about. There's so many verses that speaks on the righteousness of God. Uh, but let's turn back to our verse now and see what does Jesus then mean when he says those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. What does it mean to be blessed when you hunger and thirst for righteousness? And so the first question that we must ask here is what kind of righteousness is Jesus talking about here? Positional or functional? Take for a moment and think about it. What do you think that Jesus is talking about here? Your position before God or your function in your day-to-day life? I would argue that what he's saying here is that is to be blessed, to be hunger, hungering and thirsting uh, is actually for the functional day-to-day righteousness, a, a righteous day-to-day lifestyle one that is based upon the character of God as most exemplified by Christ in his day-to-day life. Remember, Jesus is speaking here to Christians, and although he has not gone to the cross yet, he knows that by his going to Calvary, uh, he will bring, as the scripture says, many sons to himself Whom will be justified? Whom will be declared positionally righteous before God? So he's already presupposing the fact that you will be made righteous before God because I will go to the cross. You can bank on that. But what he's saying, he's taking this concept of righteousness further. Because of my going to the cross, 
You must live a righteous lifestyle. You must pine for, long for, hunger for a righteousness, a righteous life that obviously does not come from yourself, but wholly dependent upon the Spirit of God in light of what Christ has done. And so, this, since the Beatitudes, we have already said this, is on a progression, here we are hungering and thirsting. Previously, we recognized that nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I, I cling. Amen? And that's the foundational disposition of the Christian, that to be poor in spirit is to be poor in self-estimation. And so therefore, this verse, verse 6, implies that we have a need that must be satisfied. Um, We have a need that Jesus compares to like having a hunger, like having a thirst. All of us here experience what it means to hunger and thirst. And so when you're hungry and you're thirsty, what do you care about at that moment? Satisfying that hunger, satisfying that thirst. Your number one desire is to satisfy that hunger or that thirst. But the question Jesus flips on its head is, do you have the same attitude when it comes to righteousness in your life? Do you desire that? Do you desire to fill that? Do you desire to satiate that the same way you satiate your stomach, the same way you satiate your your, your thirst glands, whatever? I'm not a biology major. Help me out here. (laughs) Do you desperately crave? Do you need? Do you demand? Do you hunger and thirst for the righteousness of God? And so if you are poor in spirit here, this would make absolute perfect sense. I'm so poor spiritually that I have no means to satisfy this hunger and thirst by myself. I'm I'm destined for eternal destruction. And I need a righteousness outside of my own because I am not righteous. However, this need, Jesus is saying, is not a one-time deal. Who has eaten and who has drank just to be hungry and thirsty again? All of us. And so Jesus is picking up on that theme because this need for righteousness cannot be filled by in a one-time deal. That's why this is not just positional righteousness here. Christians' hunger um, and thirst can't be our justification Because God simply does not declare us as righteous and leaves us to do whatever we want. But he declares us as righteous and then in turn makes the same demand he did before the fall. That we are to obey him. That we are to cultivate and have relationship and have communion with him. Same deal now as before the fall. And therefore, we are in need of righteousness every single day. God's righteousness. Uh, It's the same way you need bread to eat, water to drink, and air to breathe. Uh, The promise that it follows here uh, is so simple, and yet it should be so incredibly precious for the Christian. When you hunger and thirst for righteousness, the promise of righteous relief will always come. I want to show you from two scriptures, one from the old and one from the new, this this amazing concept of being filled, what it means to be filled. Turn with me to Isaiah 55, Old Testament book, 
in the middle of your Bible. Isaiah 55. After the Song of Solomon, before the book of Jeremiah, Isaiah 55. The Lord God is speaking here. And he's speaking about how he will nurture his nation, his people, Israel, once more and cause Israel to return to him. And we're just going to read the first three verses. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money? Or in in another sense, why do you spend all your energy, all of your effort for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my, my steadfast, sure love for David." God is explicitly saying here that those who come to him hungering and thirsting for a righteousness that they can never find for themselves will find their soul satisfaction in him. No longer will they need to rely on themselves, uh, spiritually speaking, to produce their own righteousness or to prove themselves to God or to other people, to man. But rather, if they truly turn to God, if they truly seek him, God will satisfy them. God will satiate their need by his righteousness and they will be filled, okay? Isaiah 55. Now turn with me to John chapter seven. Turn to John chapter seven, all right? All the way to the New Testament, fourth gospel, fourth book in the New Testament, John chapter seven. Uh, The context here is Jesus is uh, making his way to Jerusalem during Uh, the time of an annual feast. And after doing, he's doing spiritual battle for most of the chapter with the Pharisees. Uh, And it's so awesome because John takes this conversation and he takes what we're about to read and he holds them next to one another with Jesus. Because if you know about the Pharisees, then you'll know about that they were a group of people who wearied the people of Israel, who burdened them with the laws upon laws that was never there never intended by God in the first place, that never satisfied, that never produced a genuine righteousness for them, but just created a whole bunch of rules. Uh, None of it produced genuine righteousness. But here you have Jesus. Look at verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, Let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus, understanding the plight of the people, cries out, announces that you do not have to go to any other source, whether it's formal religion, rules and regulations, or even yourself, but come to me, he says. Jesus is specifically picking up on this reference to Isaiah. And he continues this motif of hungering and thirsting, which he began in Matthew chapter 5. And he says that outside of oneself, you cannot find righteousness. You cannot find 
satisfaction. Uh, And you can only find it in him. He is the one who fills you when you hunger and thirst for righteousness. He will fill you by going to the cross, for bearing the shame, by becoming a curse as cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. All for the reason to take away sin's curse upon himself and away from those who believe in him so that those who do believe will not be counted as unrighteous no more, but will be counted as righteous now positionally before God but now also can again and again and again return to Jesus, return to the fount of living water and be satisfied and be filled. That is what he's talking about here. When you hunger and when you thirst for righteousness, turn to Jesus. He is the one who fills you. You who are always seeking the approval of man to be seen as righteous before other people, turn to Jesus. And now when you're satisfied in Christ, there will be no other reason to seek satisfaction from any other source. Your social justice, your politics, your social media, your social media presence, your follower account, whatever you like to call it, they all pale in comparison to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord, as Paul calls it. He says it's rubbish to him. It is dung. Jesus is the one you must seek to please. And Jesus is the one who ultimately, soul-satisfyingly, pleases you. As you seek to please Jesus, know that he is pleasing all of your needs spiritually. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled by Christ, through Christ, in Christ and for Christ and to the glory of Christ forever and ever, amen. Okay? Let's go to the next verse. Back to Matthew chapter five. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And so much like how the Christian's righteousness is derived from God's righteousness and only can be found in God, only can be satisfied in God, the Christian's mercy, your mercy, is derived from God's mercy. And so I hope these previous four verses, verses three, four, five, and six, uh, and especially this most recent one about hungering and thirsting for God's righteousness, that you, have, you see, as a Christian, you've been shown great mercy. In your poor condition, you inherit the kingdom of heaven. In the mourning of your sin, you are comforted. In the meekness of your heart, in the lowliness of your heart, you are inheritors of the earth. In your hunger and your thirst for righteousness that can never come from yourself, you are filled. If that ain't mercy, I don't know what is, friends. Mercy for the Christian is like air for the human. On its opposite side, there's grace. In grace, you are shown favor. You're given privileges that you do not deserve. But through mercy, 
God has esteemed your lowly estate and has reached down and embraced you. You have been pardoned from sin's punishment. You have avoided wrath. But now more so, you have come to a place, come into God's home, into his house, where in God's lovely pity, he has adopted you as sons and daughters. Wow. God's mercy pardons and God's grace provides. And so this verse is not about how one earns God's mercy. There's no no earning God's mercy. You are shown it. Nothing from your own prompting. Uh, The Christian, by virtue and by nature, has already been shown so much mercy. But rather, what Jesus is getting at here is that the Christian must respond in mercy in light of God's mercy. We are merciful because God has been merciful. Same thing as we love because he first loved us. I hope you see that to be merciful should be the primary characteristic for the Christian. Uh, You come to understand that you are no special, no different from your fellow man. Uh, People all around you are hurting. All around you are wrestling with sin. All around you are spiritually bankrupt, whether they recognize it and they're poor in spirit or they don't recognize it and they're being spiritually proud. But mercy is a response that lovingly and patiently meets people in their spiritual need and says to them that Jesus is truly better. Jesus is better than whatever sin you are harboring. You meet people mercifully. And although you're not giving them a pass for their sinful lifestyle, you provide for them the good news of Jesus Christ, the healing balm of Christ. And, show you, and you show them that you first come to know that living for Christ is truly better than living for the approval of others. You show them that a genuine relationship with Christ opens the door for much more sweeter, genuine relationships with other people. That in mercy, you're able to bear with other people's weaknesses, with their shortcomings. Uh, Because you understand that it's Christ first who bore all of your weaknesses and all of your affirmities, as Isaiah 53 says, to the cross first. In mercy, you are able to serve with a pure heart, uh, knowing that through your service towards others, you exemplify the service of our Savior. Not just when he healed the sick, cast out demons, washed his disciples' feet, uh, but most importantly, when he went to Calvary. Uh, This beatitude of being merciful is the next logical response of being filled by Christ and his righteousness because that filling was utterly dependent upon mercy. And therefore, our mercy towards others must be the next logical, natural response. What does God promise as a result? If you notice, this beatitude, verse seven, is the only beatitude that is circular in nature. The merciful receive even more mercy. And with a greater intensity, the cycle continues. 
Mercy upon mercy. Grace upon grace. That, that is what characterizes the relationship the Christian has with Christ. God initiates his mercy by demonstrating his love for us. That while we were yet sinners, Paul says, Christ died for us. We in poverty of spirit respond by crying out to God for mercy. Much like the tax collector did when he said, have mercy on me, God, a sinner. And so God shows mercy in return. And God shows mercy again by giving us the capacity to demonstrate greater mercy to others. And there we respond again by being merciful towards others. And the cycle continues and continues and continues. What an incredible thing that a merciful God would not be fickle with his mercy, but would freely and abundantly and lavishly and magnanimously give it out because There is no bottom. There is no limit to his mercy. God in his infinite mercy shows us mercy and provides us with the mercy so that we can be in turn merciful to others and point others to never ceasing source of mercy. That is God himself. I love it. One of my best friends, my best man keeps going on to this this line. I think he attributes it to Martin Luther, but we're not sure. And he says that we are just beggars telling other beggars where to find bread. And that is Jesus, the bread of life. And lastly, with all these future promises, and although there's a very present reality of these promises being played out, hopefully in your life, hopefully you see it in your life, Today, uh, we have greater future eschatological hope that is coming. And God has shown us such a great deal of mercy today, and he will continue to do so. Uh, But we know, as he knows, that we still stumble and fall. That in these bodies, we will still sin. And we will sin Uh, Much rather, though, we do not desire it, hopefully, uh, until the day we die. Uh, You will return to the same stubborn sins as before. Uh, But on that final day, that last day, when we see Jesus, no longer by faith, but face to face by sight, uh, he is his mercy will be more than enough for us then as it is for us now. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Character, Christian character begets blessing, meaning if you earnestly seek after, hunger and thirst after righteousness, if you truly, genuinely are merciful and seek after the mercy of God, you will be blessed, Jesus says that. When your character is in line with God's character, you will be blessed. And I'm not saying this, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying this as some kind of smokescreen form of the prosperity gospel, no. Uh, Following Jesus does not equate a smooth, fun, easy, relatively pain-free lifestyle, Uh, but rather following after Jesus is quite the opposite, that we have to bear our own crosses like he did. 
Suffering and trials are promised for the Christian. However, I want to conclude our time uh, with with Paul. Uh, Turn with me to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Paul is writing to his protege, young Timothy, and he's explaining this very concept that Timothy... By becoming a pastor, by being called of God, is entering a lifestyle of hardship. And he says that this lifestyle is no different than any other Christians. Uh, But Paul Paul promises Timothy this. Look at verse 6. But godliness, the pursuit of God, with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food, and we have clothing, with these we will be content. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness will be met with satisfaction. Uh, Mercy will be met with even more mercy. And I think in Christ Jesus we have so much reason to be thankful, so much reason to be content, so much reason to call ourselves truly blessed of God uh, because we have him. We have him at the end of the day. Do you know this Jesus? Are you satisfied by this Jesus? Uh, Because I can assure you that he is beyond a shadow of a doubt, more soul-satisfying, more life-enriching than anything you can find on this earth. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that in his righteous life, we can have a righteous life reunited to you of our own. And no longer do we need a look through the trash heaps of this world just to come out empty. But Lord, thank you for all the riches, all the lavishness we have in Christ. Thank you for being merciful to us, for those who've come to know you and treasure you as Lord and Savior. And Lord, may we, may we in turn, may our hearts not be so proud to not return back to the fountain of living waters. Uh, But may we return again and again, bringing every infirmity and every need that we have to the feet of Christ, knowing we have a Savior who still listens and still cares for us. May we be satisfied in him alone. Amen. All right, everybody. Uh, we'll be back again next week. We'll be pushing on. We have a couple of Beatitudes left.